Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Uh, Yancy Strickler uh, is the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. And he's also the, uh, let me start again. Uh, Yancy Strickler is a writer and a, Yancy Strickler is uh, the former CEO. Sorry, Yancy Strickler is the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. He's also first-time author of a brand new book. This could be our future: a manifesto for a more generous world. Uh, Yancy, uh, you've already given us Kickstarter. Uh, why do we need a book from you? <laughs> That's. That should be everyone's question. Uh, any time they write anything, uh, it's, <clears throat> um, yeah. Well, well, you know, th- th- thanks for having me on. But um, you know, it was about it was in uh, 2014. I was I was CEO of Kickstarter, and I was living in the Lower East Side uh, in New York, and I was watching gentrification happen, and. Um, and there was just a, a new level that happened one day, which is that there's a a bar in the Lower East Side, a bar in the Lower East Side called Mars Bar, which opened around the same time as CBGBs and is like a punk institution. It shut down in 2013, and it was replaced by a TD Bank. And um, what's crazy is that it was the fourth TD Bank within a 15-minute walk of that corner. Four TD banks in like the Lower East Side Soho. Hey, hey, excuse my uh, ignorance here, but what's a TD bank? TD bank. That's just a brand. TD Ameritrade. It's a Canadian bank branch. Okay. So it's kind of like Wells Fargo or Bank of America yeah. or something. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so there were four of this same branch, like within a fifteen-minute radius, and um, and I ended up digging into this and was just super curious and discovered that. The number of bank branches in Manhattan and, and the city had increased by almost a thousand over the previous decade, and it occurred to me that you know something that's obvious but uh, hadn't been so stark before, but that in every storefront where I was seeing a, a bank, there had once been something like Mars Bar, a local New York business um, that was being pushed out and forced out, and. You know, it's it's an old story um, and, and uh, an old news story, one that we've gotten used to pretty quickly. Um, but at the time, I had been booked to give a, a a talk at a big event called Web Summit that's in Dublin, and it's like tens of thousands of people go to this thing. And 
at, at the encouragement of a, a former colleague of mine, Julie Wood, like she she challenged me to like to to go for it in this talk to like really try to say something to not just try to talk about Kickstarter like talk about some of the bigger things that I care about, and so I ended up telling the story of Mars Bar and TD Bank and told the story of my neighborhood changing, and and connected the forces changing that to the same forces that were making every movie a sequel to something that had already been made before, uh, that were putting Taylor Swift on the cover of every magazine that were, it was the same reason why every pop song was being written by one of two balding Scandinavian men. And I call this force behind it, financial maximization. The idea that the rational choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And so this was this default setting that was just invisibly guiding our world. And it was just becoming more and more powerful. So I give this talk and I like, throw down this gauntlet and um and i was terrified i was terrified and it got such an interesting response like people were quite emotional talking to me afterwards and there was a sense that like uh, something that we could all feel but was hard to see was made a little bit more visible through this sort of metaphor and way of looking at it and can, can we can we step yeah. back a little bit here someone yeah. I'm not saying I'm thinking this, but some listeners might think, well, this Yancey guy, he made his money from Kickstarter. He's doing fine. Um, he's a former punk. He, you know, his background before Kickstarter was also in the music business. So he finds this, um, he finds uh, that his, his local neighborhood in, in, in New York City has been transformed by these uh, 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 branches of, of, of banks. Um, aren't you just another kind of old, maybe not so old, but relatively old white guy who uh, who has done very well and suddenly become nostalgic for your youth? <laughs> there's always that, there's, there is always that danger. There is always that danger. I think, I definitely think that's worth asking. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really think so. I don't think that was the case here. I mean, I don't really drink, so it's not like Mars Bar was a, was a place that was my jam. Um, and you know, it's it's um, it's interesting. I mean, the way we went about creating Kickstarter was was trying to not uh, let ourselves fall into that trap uh, of being that person. And you know, when when myself and Charles Adler and Perry Chen started Kickstarter, um, you know, we all agreed from the beginning that we didn't want to try to sell the company or go public. We didn't want to use it as a personal lottery ticket. Um, the idea was to build something over the long term, and that meant taking that, you know, that that lottery moment away from ourselves. And that was a decision that like wasn't a hard one for me to make, and that I continue to believe in and be proud of. Um, it's just like a for me growing up in in the punk and like punk indie scene, like the idea of not selling out is about as core as it gets for my for my values. So like I come at this, so certainly I'm, I'm susceptible to like the, the way that age turns us all into hypocrites or whatever, whatever, whatever it is that happens. Certainly I don't, I don't deny that. Um, but I was, I don't know, I felt like I was, I just had this sense that I, that I was putting my finger on a deeper kind of pulse. And um, is your, is your critique of, and this is a sort of a very broad question, but is your critique of capitalism itself, the instinct to make money, the, the market, you know, the free market economic system that we all live under, 
or is your critique of a particular kind of capitalism? Yeah, it's it's an extremist brand uh, of capitalism that I think began in the 1970s. You know, this is when the economy really became financialized. I trace in the book I trace this back to to how we define our rational self-interest and the game theory concept of the rationality of maximizing your self-interest and tying this with Friedman's case for maximizing shareholder value and then just looking at the way the economy and companies began to function extremely differently starting in the mid 70s. Um, and so I'm really thinking about what has happened to the world since that point, because I think before that in the US um, and really still going up a little bit farther in time than that, but in the US, the focus previously had been on growing the middle class. You know, capitalism was in a competition with communism to determine what was the best social structure. And the scoreboard they were competing on is who could grow the largest middle class. And so America was, was sort of focused on this goal of a, of, of approving capitalism through a collective achievement of building a model society and through the notion of getting everyone up to a certain level standard of living like this is what we would take pride in and then after that the cold war started to deteriorate and you know the, the west started to run away with it you know the first mcdonald's opening in moscow all that sort of th stuff um, then we just lost we, we we lost the idea that like this money had any purpose of say building a, a strong society and instead the goal just became getting as much as you can and just trusting that that would work out. And this became a very rational and seemingly like unimpeachable way to think about running things. Like what do you do? You just, you just optimize for financial outcomes because financial value can be traded for all else. It's the one thing we know how to measure. It's the one thing that sort of underlies everything in a capitalist society. And so that just became this sort of easy, easy fallback that, just became more and more invisible while becoming more and more powerful. And we're, we're at a moment now where we are sort of being jolted awake a bit uh, to what's going on. And I, I found what happened last week with the NBA and Hong Kong to be an amazing example of that. Well, where, let's, um, yeah. let, let's before we get into the details of the contemporary world, uh, I'd like again to step back a little bit and, 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 and think about the broader issues here. Um, you said you, so to speak, came out as a, as a, as a critique of this uh, financialized world at Web Summit in Dublin a few years ago, Web Summit being one of the largest um, events for the tech community in the world. What's, uh, and you as a tech insider understand this as well as anyone, what is the role or what has been the role of Silicon Valley in this financialized world? Is Silicon Valley essentially the Western branch of Wall Street? Hmm. Um, you know, new, Kickstarter is, uh, we're always based in New York and, um, and took great pride in not being a Valley company and really stayed away from that as much as possible. So Weirdly, I don't have a super strong opinion or feel of Silicon Valley, I think, in some ways. I think probably what I'd be saying would be, uh, you know, only a mildly informed sort of position. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's, it seems to be a community that's been really shaped by gigantic sums of money. Um, and, and it's just amazing how much of the world's capital base has flowed there, you know, over the past 10 or 15 years. And, 
you know, if I think about the amount of money that say has been spent on, you know, unicorns, the sort of thing that, um, that SoftBank's been doing. And then, you know, thinking about how much money say the U S has spent on wars, uh, over the past 20 years, like it just seems like an extraordinarily poor use of capital, um, from, from my perspective in terms of real outcomes. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that money has certainly shaped a lot of how people behave and the expectations that are set. And for us with Kickstarter, I mean, we, we, didn't raise a lot of money focused on being profitable early on, like saw that as, uh, as protecting our ability to, to call our own shots as a company. Um, and so view always viewing money as being a trade-off and not viewing it as something to celebrate as something to be a little bit afraid of. It's something that it can be certainly useful. Um, but it's also something that's, that's dangerous. And um, so I don't know that that's a common opinion held in tech, but certainly for Perry and Charles and I, I think we all kind of felt similarly about that. And that, you know, it, it, it helped that we got that we had just sort of similar instincts governing those kinds of choices. We, um, we've heard a, a lot of similar idealism from pioneers of the sharing economy, which Kickstarter is an important part of. Uh, I wouldn't say similar ideas, but certainly we heard over the last few years a very sort of idealistic take on the world from the founders of Uber and Airbnb and many other of the sharing companies. Some of them, and I'm not accusing you of this at Kickstarter, but some of them have, have turned out to be incredibly controversial, if not fraudulent. Um, mm. it, and, and I don't want you to comment on Uber or Airbnb or, 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 or some of these other sharing companies. Uh, but do you think this quote-unquote sharing economy, which you're part of, is that in itself somewhat fraudulent or can it be a solution to some of these core problems of late capitalism, of this uh, financialization of the world? Well, I wouldn't I, – I never thought of Kickstarter as being a sharing economy company. I mean, it's, you know – Maybe we would have called it peer-to-peer -peer or something in another era. Yeah, well, that, but let's use peer-to-peer -peer then, which, which in my mind is sort of similar sure. in some ways to the sharing economy. Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, there, there's definitely the, the early exuberance, um, whether it's the press or founders or employees, and just the thrill of like an idea working and you're – mind and ego going into hyperactive overdrive about all the things that could happen as a result of this. I mean, that's, that's certainly a, a phase of success that you kind of go through. And, and I feel like that's something you have to like sort of catch you, catch yourself on to not get too carried away. Um, like this is when, you know, Jack, Jack Dorsey saying he's interested in being mayor of New York. You know, you have these moments where it just feels like they're, you know, you can do no wrong, but those moments do not last. Um, you know, I, I think that, values are values are proven out over time you know they're 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 easy to say um they're harder to live they're especially hard to live when there's conflict you know when your when your values just provide smooth sailing you know then what what you know what can you really say so i think those things are earned out over time um and you know i, I would say it seems to me Airbnb has done a better job of that than Uber has. But but Airbnb are... is an interesting case of the unintended consequences of some yeah. of this. I agree with you. Certainly, uh, the, the Airbnb leaders are nothing like 
Travis Kalalnik and what Uber has done over the years. But at the same time, even if 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 Airbnb as a as a platform is well meaning, the impact has which is becoming increasingly clear of uh, the sort of ubiquity of Airbnb is the decimation of. Um, of 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 many urban centers, similar kind of process to what to to, to what you said happened in New York, yep. and indeed it's become so problematic that some European cities like Barcelona have actually banned Airbnb rentals. So it's yep. not necessary that these that the, the peer to peer guys are up to no good. They're not evil in any way, but the unintended consequences of this economy are in many ways deeply problematic. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot of those consequences, you know, you you don't find out immediately. You know, right. you 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 discover them over time. And so you know, someone uh you know, it's it's like do we so do we do we want to do we want these things to operate on like a you know, there should be consensus before we move forward with changes or do we want to have like a post-consensus world where people can do things and then we try to patch them up afterwards. And, mm. you know, we, we've, we've been like the West has been kind of post consensus in most things for a while. And I think, I think that's generally the right way to go, but it just, you know, it's just how, how, how nimble can regulators be? How quickly can respond, can we respond? And also how do you, how do you know whether something's truly a problem or just some, you know, early pang of change. I mean, I, I think these things are, they seem a lot more clear in retrospect than they do at the time. And I, and I would still say we're probably still fairly early in experiencing what, you know, what, what these things are, what, what sort so, of downsides of these, these things are. So, so, so lay out your future, um, Yancey. Your book is, is brilliantly suggestive, seductive. This could be our future. <laughs> right, right. Could be. So it could isn't be. yet, but it could be. Could and be. You, 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 the, the subtitle is A Manifesto for a More Generous World. So very briefly, what is that manifesto to, to, to create a, a more generous world? Well, the, the first half of the book explores the financial maximization idea and shows how it touches various parts of culture, how country radio has had one song be number one for a year straight because of the degree of consolidation of radio stations in America. So just like showing ways that our world has been reshaped. And then in the second half of the book, I, I, I lay out my idea. And, and my idea is built on expanding what we think of as our rational self-interest and expanding what we think of as being rationally valuable. So in, in my experience, um, you often have debates between a financial argument and a non-financial argument. A non-financial argument being like what's great for the community, what's great for the long term, these sorts of things. And you get into this place where it feels like a rational argument, meaning the financial side, versus an emotional argument of like anything other than money. And in those cases, the financial argument almost always wins, except in extreme circumstances where maybe emotional arguments will, will win at, at moments of real crisis. Um, and so, you know, I, I believe that our rational self-interest is larger than we think, and, and I believe that the potential for new values is larger than we think. So I, I invent and introduce a new philosophy called bentoism, bentoism like a Japanese bento box. And mm, I, yeah, exactly. I, I, one day I was, I was just doodling a, a hockey stick graph in my notebook because this is what you do. Uh, you know, a, a 
a slope of going uh, of a line going up and to the right. And I was like, this is a graph of self-interest. This is, this is what we think of as self-interest today. And when looking at this, it occurred to me that the x-axis of that, of that graph of time goes far, for, far, far, far out in the future beyond where we see it. That x-axis keeps going. And the y-axis measuring the self-interest of whatever you're growing, units, sold, uh, fame, um, that also keeps going. The y-axis keeps going up as well because as our self-interest grows, so does our responsibility. It goes from me into us, from me to us. And so I like sort of elongated the lines of this, of this hockey stick chart and then just sort of saw all this white space. And I just thought, what, what is this? And I end up sort of drawing it and turning it into a two by two box. And, and in that, show that there are four distinct spaces of our self-interest. There's the now me space, the bottom left corner where the hockey stick graphs live of what I want and need right now. That is how we think of our self-interest today. But there's also in the bottom right, there is our future me, the person that we want to be living up to the values we say we have, those sort of long-term things that you earn. That is also a part of our self-interest. There's also now us, the top left corner, the people who we rely on and who rely on us, the obligations we have to one another. And there's also future us, the top right corner. And this is the our children and everybody else's children too, the next generation. And so we believe right now that our self-interest is restricted to this now me space, but all of these spaces are impacted by every choice we make. They influence all of our decisions, but right now we're blind to most of them. We just don't really think about them. We can feel them, uh, but we struggle to think coherently and to collaborate on them. And so the reason why we struggle with problems of the future or problems of our uh, collective interaction or social co cohesion is that we can't really understand them as being sort of meaningful and real in the way that they actually are. So I call it bentoism because when I first drew this thing on my piece of paper, I thought, what, what the hell is this? And I, I just wrote down beyond near-term orientation. Like I was trying to think beyond the near-term orientation and I realized that was an acronym for bento. And the bento box derives from a Japanese word meaning convenience. A bento box always has a variety of dishes, a mix of things. So it's never too much of one thing. It's a healthy balance. A healthy balance is a default. And the bento also honors a Japanese eating philosophy called hara hachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So bentoism is the same idea for our self-interest and also for rational value. Because if we can agree that these other spaces are also rationally in our self-interest, are places that we should be thinking about when making choices, I believe the next step is to say that there are values, values that can be measured, values that are that are real, that we can identify in each of those spaces and we can begin to make collective choices and having collective goals about the future by thinking about things in this way. This is extremely um, attractive and smart and perhaps even seductive, but for the vast majority of people who live day to day, I don't know what the exact number is, I think it's something like 50 or 60% of Americans don't have that $400 for a, a medical emergency. Um, 40, 43% of Americans can't afford their bills each month. Wow. So you know your numbers, 43%. So for those 43%, your bento box is all very well, but isn't it really a luxury? How, how, how do most people um, come to think so profound? How can we get most people who live day to day, who don't have the luxury of your and my lifestyle, 
how can we get them to think more philosophically about the world? Because I think your bento box and your four sectors are, are, are convincing, are correct. But we need to think more long term. We need to escape ourselves. We need to think of future generations. We get that. But how are most people going to get that? Well, I, th- I think that there is um, I think that there is a a gut feeling of that. Like, I, I think that there is a knowledge within everybody of like those spaces. It's, it's, it's maybe hard to articulate. Um, I, I'm trying to build a muscle memory. I'm trying to build a habit, a practice. Um, so the way I've been using this, so I, I've been, once you, once I made this, this form of the bento, then I started answering questions to find out what is in that for me. And I ended up creating my own bento. So it's, it's the home screen of my phone. It's sort of my values and it's my guide to self-coherence. Like when I make decisions, I look at this and I think about each of these spaces and I try to design answers that, uh, that fulfill these things. And, and what I've been doing, um, you know, when I first came up with this idea, I was terrified, uh, really terrified, because who wants to introduce like a new ism in 2019? Like what, what the hell? Um, but I, so I decided I want to try to talk about it in front of people. And so I, I had a friend of mine in LA invite some people over uh, to her living room. And like two weeks after coming up with this theory, I just stood in front of about 30 people and I presented this. To see how whether, many of them, yeah, in curious, uh, I'm curious how many of those 40 people that you presented this to in LA um, uh, are in that 43% of Americans who, who don't have the $400 to, uh, to fix their car or to deal with a medical emergency? Probably that talk, not a lot. Um, but in talks I've done since, uh, definitely, they definitely have been. So that was like my first attempt of just like, what, what, what does it feel to say this in front of other human beings? What do their faces look like? Do they get it or not? Is the, am I crazy? And it was a, it was a very good response. And so, um, you know, I, I kept working on working on it. And so the past three or four months, I've begun doing workshops out of my house. Um, I just either put out invitations through my newsletter or having other people put out invitations to their communities and just sitting there with a group of 10 to 20 strangers. And I teach them the process of building their bento and, and lead them to this experience of, of trying to find self-coherence. And so you I, live in, you live in LA, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereabouts? I mean, not the street, but which neighborhood? Ec- Echo Park. So if there are people listening to this who, yeah. who, who could make it to your home in Echo Park, how would they contact you? Uh, why, they could go to my w- website, whystrickler.com, first initial, last name.com. There's a contact button. I, I'll, have, I'll start having sign-up forms for more of them too. I also did one as a Zoom two weeks ago, trying to do a video, video conference version, which went pretty well. Um, Can I come? Yeah, of course. Of course. But it's a, I'm really trying, like, I don't, you know your your questions that you're you're asking i agree like i i don't i don't want to create i want i want to create something that's useful and and so i'm really trying to put it into practice in my own life and then helping other people and i'm now in like long running dialogues with people who have gone through this and who have their bentos and who now send me questions saying hey how do i i came up with this weird situation where three bentos said this and one said that what am i supposed to do and so i i i'm I'm learning more about this idea as people experience it. 
Uh, is this something, sorry, is this this manifesto, can this be realized outside politics? Is this essentially a, 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 an ideology of self-help? It it could be. I think if it's I think if it's just an ideology of self-help, I think it's too limited. Um, you know, I think I think that has to be a part of it. But I do think there has to be also a kind of a top-down part to this too. To me, I think of companies as being the place where that seems most natural, because mm. companies are are so bought into values already, and and like the the degree to which companies agree that values are rational things that affect the outcomes of our decisions is like kind of amazing to what degree that is broadly agreed upon. Um, so I feel like that's something to build on. What so would you be comfortable if? You know, a company like Google or Facebook or Amazon took on this manifesto internally, given their role in in the economy that you're so disturbed by. I I think so. <laughs> I, I say that with question. I say that with a question mark because, you know, maybe this is the maybe this is Airbnb, and I don't I don't I don't know what all the what all the weird side effects of this might be, but I. I think so, but a strange thing about this is that it doesn't it doesn't enforce a value system other than awareness. Um, like if you could be a, a white nationalist and have a bento, and it could it could make you a more effective white nationalist. And is that good or bad? Yeah, well, I really struggled <laughs> with that. I had you want I, bento boxes for white nationalists? Yeah, I had I had like several weeks of really struggling with this, thinking. If my idea could help someone be more effective at something I disagree with, like what does that mean? And maybe this is a convenient answer for myself, but I eventually came to think that's actually a good thing because it means that I'm not imposing anything on anyone else other than simply giving them a tool to look at themselves, which to me feels like a should be a safe thing to do. But um, don't we need, uh, you know, given given the depth, the scale of our crisis, which I think yeah. you and I would probably agree about. Don't we need some kind of enforcement? Because if we just leave it up to everyone, that that's the problem in the first place. This mm. kind of broad libertarianism that's mm. brought us to this crisis. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm certainly very open to there being a a political component to this. I don't, you know, I don't know what that is yet. You know that that but it is. A, but you're, I mean, like it or not, Yancey, you're part of a. I don't know how you would describe it, a, a cultural or a, a political or economic rethinking of our world. Yeah. And you're seeing it in political terms. You're seeing it with the success of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. You're seeing it in people wanting to rethink the very foundations of um, of American life from healthcare to education. Don't you think that this kind of profound rethink, this manifesto has to go along with a, a dramatic political shift uh, in 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 American capitalism. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't think just a bunch of people becoming, you know, uh, having greater awareness in their lives individually will will make the kind of change we need. I, I definitely agree with that. I think what I'm saying is like. I don't know somewhere to call me and say like what's the what's the leg, what's the bento legislation you want to put up there? I'm I would have mm. I would have no idea right now. But I think you know in a well, year or two. You, but you uh, must have positions I, I on. Uh, but you must have positions on on the big issues in the world today: taxation, yeah. uh, the the reform of the American medical system, uh, whether people should have to pay to go to college. Isn't this part of your manifesto? I mean, I talk about those things a, a little bit, but I feel like I am 
the the argument maybe the first half of the book is a little is is more at that level and the, and the second half is more is more at the philosophical and and kind of trying to use the bento also to explain why certain people or companies stand out in our economy today so i i talk about like patagonia's choices around sharing proprietary information with their competitors if it will help the environment as like a future us choice, a rational choice that doesn't make sense from a, 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 you know, a classical economic perspective, but absolutely makes sense according to their sense of values. I talk about Chick-fil-A being closed on Sundays, costing them a billion dollars a year, where six days out of the week, they are a normal financially maximizing company. One day out of the week, very rationally, there's something quite different. Um, and so just saying like, we can use this tool to map what, what these people and companies are seeing and how it is they're making these choices. And my hope is that that would make decisions like that more commonplace, um, uh, just because it would empower more people to get there. But I mean, I agree, I, I, can't, I can't say that this exists outside of the political process. I, I just, it's, it's probably the world that this touches that I know the least about on like a personal level as, you know, as much as I followed politics my whole life. Like I don't, I don't know a lot of the sausage of that stuff, you know? Yancey, you present your manifesto as painless. You know, we all get these bento boxes, we <laughs> rethink our lives, and we have yeah. this, this moment of clarity where we suddenly realize that our lives aren't making us happy, so we're going to redirect it. But surely there's some pain to this, or there should be some pain mm. for a manifesto for a more generous world. People have to give mm. stuff up. I mean, they have to give up their fancy cars, their fancy apartments, their expensive trips abroad, their, their, um, their, their propensity to spend hundreds of dollars a week on restaurants. Mm. There, there has to be pain here, doesn't there? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I mean, I would say so. I think, I think that really values are shown and determined through sacrifice of, uh, of other kinds of spaces. So I, I think that's a part of it. You know, I, in the book, I write about a 30-year theory of change. And I, I, I offer a theory that large-scale, nonviolent, organic change takes 30 years, takes a generation. I give all sorts of examples and reasons why. But there are also violent changes like Trump or like Brexit that happen much faster and that are cause all sorts of you know very challenging side effects and maybe they're not side effects they're just part of the point of why they're even doing this um, and then we have something like what we have now where we have the climate crisis we have this battle between economic values and now like values of free speech with china becoming really in the forefront and so we're starting to have these real real cataclysmic clashes between financial value and these other these non-financial values and they're these things are coming down the pipe very fast at us and i'm watching i'm watching us like all try to wrap our heads around to what degree like we need to evolve and i that that awareness is coming i think those are the sorts of things that are going to force us to make those changes and those will be kind of like the umbrella reasons um that will you know, that will get people to go along with these things. Like if I think about capitalism being more performative when it had to prove itself against the Soviet Union, I imagine capitalism could become a lot more seemingly altruistic if it's having to prove itself against China as like a, the dominant force on the globe. So possibly that could be a force. But 
you know the cli- the climate crisis the climate crisis is is the factor that just kind of blows everything else out of the water Absolutely. that just kind of makes think, everything else yeah yeah and I think if there is one issue that really validates your bento box, it is the climate crisis. So uh, finally, Yancy, um the floor is yours in terms of telling people how they can begin mm. to create. They, they personally can, can, can create, that can, can contribute towards our better future to a more generous world. What should people do in a very concrete way? Should they go out to a Japanese restaurant and buy a bento <laughs> box lunch and just stare at it? Will will the wisdom come, or are there are there are there more effective ways to begin this? You're clearly into the process. You're pioneering this, so it comes naturally to you. But for many many of our listeners, it won't. How should they begin concretely? A couple of things that they might start to do. To, to to get them on the uh, on the the trail to this better future. Yeah, I mean, you know, if if uh, I mean, I, I I I think bentoism is 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 the it's the most concrete um, way to think about that 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 I've been able to come up with, and um, and there will be you know I guess probably by the time people are listening to this there this will be online, but there will be a version of. Um, the workshop that will be online at bentoism.org where it's a 15 minute thing where you'll just have a piece of paper and you can draw your bento and you, you draw a blank well, bento and you summarize that question. 15 minutes in one minute for us. Cause not everyone will have the time to go to your website. Uh, you will, you will take a, you'll draw a, a bento, a blank bento on a piece of paper and you'll be asked to answer a series of questions about what does your now me need? What are the things you need to be secure? What is what do you look for for pleasure? What does your future me need? What is the what's the the obituary you wish you could have if you were to live up to those values? What are those red lines you wouldn't cross? What is that the now us? Who are the people that you rely on and that rely on you? And what is at the heart of your relationships? What do you owe each other? What do you give each other? And then what is it about the future that you think is so important? What should be different about now? So you're guided through a very simple, like five to five minute process just to write down your, your raw ideas to those things. And then it helps guide you to shorten those into little, little punchy things you can remember. And those just become a simple uh, sort of litmus test for you as you're looking at the world and thinking about what is the self-coherent choice? How do I act in a way that is in line with who I am, where I'm trying to minimize my self-compromise as much as possible, and we're able to live in such a way that, you know, I'm breaking this cycle rather than just continuing it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 exciting. I've been living this way for a year, and I, you know, I'm I'm into it, and it's it's had a meaningful effect on my life, and it, it has done that for the people who've gone through this experience so far. So. Yeah, you know, I, I hope people are willing to give it a shot and just try, and um, so, and and I think it can provide a real benefit. So that could be all of our futures. Uh, read uh, Yancy's new book. This could be our future. Go out and buy a bento box. Uh, Yancy Strickler, best of luck with your revolution. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it.